All right, we want to welcome everybody today as we uh, jump back into Revelation. Last week we, we were out of that on Easter Sunday, but this week we're jumping back in to Revelation chapter 15. So grab your Bible and turn there, and this is the last of, uh, of the, the curses that come on or the plagues. Um, and, and so as we come in, today's the, the seven bowls. If you remember, we went back and we started um, going back in chapter Five and, and, and moving forward, we had the uh, the seals, the opening of the seven seals. Then we had, following that, the seven trumpets. We had a couple of little interludes in there, and, and then we've had this this big break between the trumpets and the seals, where there are seven other things that took place in there. Now we're going to do the seven bulls. So as we come into Revelation chapter fifteen, he says, "Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing." Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what happened, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, and standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So as we come in, I want to get two things, and, and we'll break verses 1 through 4, then 5 um, through the conclusion of it in 9. And, um, and the first thing is, the defeat of evil leads to great praise and rejoicing. This is what happens when, when evil is defeated here with these bulls, when this, this first angel when, when, um, comes in and, and begins, when I, when I see this, when John says, when I see this, um, we have these seven angels, and when this happens, there is great praise that breaks out in, in the latter part of that. They begin to, to break out in song in verse 3. But the seven angels with the seven plagues are going to be fully laid out in chapter 16. Um, what's happening here is the first verse is going to introduce it, and then we're going to go backwards and, and stop for a minute and and blow it out a little bit. And, and we had the same thing happen when we were doing the seven seals. Um, we went through the seven seals. And, uh, and then at, at the, between the sixth and the seventh, you had the 144,000 in the ceiling. Then we went to the trumpets. And between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, you had the angel with the little scroll. And then that was followed by the two witnesses. And, and so it, it connects. Each of these pieces connect, and they kind of lock together with these little interludes that, that pop in there. Um, but this one is, is the last of it. And um, we're going to... Um, to see and, and be reminded today that we're in a battle. We are in a battle here in this world, in this life, in, in our time and in our place, just as Christians have been throughout the ages and will be until the coming of Christ. But we're a part of, of God's people. We are a part of the people of God, past, past present, future. And our struggles with sin and evil and that, that, um, that it causes... Ultimately, what we're going to see here, they're going to result in victory. The struggle will result in victory. Um, Revelation reminds us that God is on the throne. 
God is sovereign. There is nothing that can change him. There is nothing that can defeat him. There is nothing that can thwart his purposes or his plans. He alone is is worthy. And last week we celebrated the empty tomb. Today um, we are still celebrating the empty tomb, but we're reminding ourselves that the throne has never been empty. The throne will never be empty. God has always been on the throne, and he will always be there, and he is sovereign over all things. In Revelation 20, verses 9 and 10, as we look towards the end of the book, what John writes, he says, and they marched up over a broad plain. The they is, is um, the, the evil forces of darkness, Satan and all of his minions. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in their beloved city. So if you look at the picture, you have Satan and all of his army coming up, surrounding the people of God, surrounding the saints, and here's what goes down. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. They never drew blood. They never did a thing because God is sovereign and God will protect his people and ultimately he finishes it. It is done. That is where we're going. It said, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. So that's where it goes down. This is what happens, and and this is what, when we're coming in with this angel here, um, or this sign in these seven bowls and seven angels, um, in in chapter chapter 15, verse 1, and and we're seeing that this is the final in the wrath of God being poured poured out. Um, verse, inter- verse 2, now it's going to interrupt it, and we're going to stop, and then this verse chapter 16, we'll pick it back up. So it's kind of like, hold on, we're getting to the bowls here. John says, hold on, we, we got to go back and, and look. So here it is, um, verse 2 stops it and gives us a glimpse of the celebration that's going on in heaven, gives us a glimpse of what has, is happening with the people of God um, and all of the heavenly hosts and, and the celebration that, that's taken place with the defeat of the beast in chapter 14 and coming in. So those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name are standing by the sea of glass praising God. So remember, if we go back into the beginning in chapter 4, the sea of glass is around the the throne of God. So we come around the throne of God, we have this sea of glass, you've got the four living creatures, you've got the 24 elders, and you've got the multitude of the people of God surrounding that, worshiping him and praising him. And as you come in, we we see this in, in the book of Revelation, the thing to remember, the sea is never seen as, you know, this beautiful thing. Like you, you may have, you know, some of you, somebody told me they went out and walked on the beach yesterday, you know, great, and how beautiful it is and how warm it is. I didn't wear a coat today. That's amazing. I am in short sleeves and I did not wear a coat. Yes! And I'm looking forward to months of that, months of it. You know, we're maybe pulling the coat out when I absolutely have to. But anyway, and we went for a walk yesterday and I didn't wear a coat. Yes. So the sea, the sea, you know, we see it as this beautiful thing. We go out there and we look at it. You go out and you look at the ocean or, or whatever. But in the book of Revelation, it's like when you go down there and, and you're hauling your boat down and you're getting ready to go into the water and you look and there's a curl about this high. And you go, yeah, I don't think we're going to fish today. 
because we can't even get into the water unless you're in a really big boat. And, and in the book of Revelation, that's what the sea is. It is not a fun place. It is a dark place. It is a place of chaos. It is a place of tumult. And, and I know some of you, it's like, it can never get too rough for me. Fine, that's good. Um, you can have it. It does not agree with me. So I like this metaphor. I like the picture of the sea being calmed. And, and I like that, and I like to see it. But in Revelation, the sea represents cosmic evil. That's the typical representation of the sea. It's cosmic evil. It is the dark forces of Satan coming up and rising up. You have the beast coming up from the sea. Um, and, and so when we look at this, we don't see something that's, that's encouraging and coming in. But instead, we see that God has calmed the forces of darkness. He has conquered the, dark, the forms of darkness. And the beast um, in the new heaven and the new earth, there will no longer be any sea. The sea will be his glass. It will be covered. And, and Jesus' death and resurrection sealed the victory over evil. They defeated Satan and calmed the, the darkness of his watery abode. So this is what's taking place here, and this is what's going down. It says the, the things of Satan, they have been totally defeated. And then in here, we see another little twist on it in that there's fire mixed in with it. So there's fire mixed in with the sea, and, and fire represents d- divine judgment on the wicked. If we come in in the book of Revelation, when we see fire, it's, it's judgment on the wicked. Now, the flip side of that is we see fire as being a purifying thing on the people of God. So just as God judges sin, he also purifies us with that and, and burns out the stuff that, um, that is destroying us within our own lives. So those who have conquered the beast are standing there worshiping God for his holiness. This is what's going down in front of the throne. So you've got all of the people of God, the people who have conquered the beast, the people who are there worshiping, and, and they are standing there before the throne of God in all of his holiness. And the thing is, is to remember for us today, it's really simple. You know, we, you look, I look at these pictures and I go, this is, this is like, poof, my mind blows up. And, and you just go, you know, I can't really visualize this, this throne of God and the majesty of God and four living creatures that I can't really even describe. And, and then 24 elders around that and then a magnitude of people that's countless worshiping God and, and the roar of it all and, the, and the, the volume of it all and the shaking of it all and, and, and the... Uh, just the awe that it would inspire beyond anything we could ever imagine on this planet. But, but the thing that's going on here is, is they are celebrating the destruction of evil. They are celebrating that. And this is something that every single one of us can, can understand in the room. When evil, when evil is put down, when evil is judged when evil is destroyed in our world people celebrate people celebrate when wickedness is shown for what it is and people stand up and they stand firm on the word of god not just the people of god celebrate but people all over sell people who don't know god celebrate because there's something good and beautiful and and real about living the way that god created us too. In Proverbs 29, 2, it says, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, 
the people groan. We could go back to the beast on the earth, the beast coming out of the water, um, the, the evil of evil government or of evil within um, religious institutions, or we could come back on into here and, and just come back and say, this is something we've seen throughout history. This is something that you see play out over and over and over again in the annals of history. And you see that when there are oppressors who oppress people and, and do evil and wicked things and those people are overcome, you see multitudes of people rejoice. They rejoice. And that is the scene that's happening in heaven. When those who are oppressed are vindicated, they rejoice. They rejoice, and, and this is what's happening right there beside the deal. It, it's saying that these people are standing there, and, and they have the harps of God in their hand, and they are getting ready to absolutely celebrate. It is going to be a huge thing. Um, the, the biggest way to look at it today, we're daily looking at images of people being brutally oppressed, daily. You're seeing images that are flopping up on TV, on, on your newsfeed, whatever it is. You're seeing horrible, horrible things done to human beings. And if it doesn't rip your guts out, I don't know what to say. But, but it, it is evil and wicked. And when that is put down, when that is ended, the righteous will rejoice. They will rejoice. That is, that is something that's going on today in our world. It's happened historically. Those of us who are in, uh, those in the room who have lived many years have seen it play out over and over and over again throughout world history. But um, we're, we're looking at people um, in, that are in a battle, and when, if they win that battle or when they win that battle, they will rejoice. Why? Because wicked, wickedness leads to oppression. We all know that. We all know that wickedness leads to oppression and, <clears throat> and nobody, nobody wants to be oppressed, right? I mean, we don't want to be oppressed. We don't want people doing wicked things to us just because they can or they have the power or anything else. The, only the wicked rejoice when evil rules. Only wicked people rejoice in evil. That's just uh, a truth. You, you, don't, you could probably throw that out and say, you don't even need to say, well, the Bible says. You know, it's just, it's just a fact of life, right? Which the Bible does lay out facts, right? But, but you know, that's, that's an aside. So as, as we come in, only the wicked rejoice when, when evil rules. So just as an aside on that, if, um, you know, we have people that, that have been members of our church, they're serving as missionaries, they were in Ukraine, they're outside of Ukraine, they're dealing with refugees coming out of Ukraine, millions of them fleeing out. And, and as they come out, you can pray for them. You, you can pray for Shannon and Michelle. You know, they're wondering where are we going to live now, now that we've had to leave, uh, you know, we've had to leave Russia, we've had to leave Ukraine, we've had to leave everything behind, and what's going to happen, um, where, where are we going to go, and, and you can pray for that. You can go to imb.org, and you can look and see video of what we're doing, what our church is participating in as we support missionaries overseas. You can give there, and you always can, I mean, through through the, those websites, through imb.org and amb.org. Um, and come in, and that's that's um, they have they'll have video and, and other things and interviews with people and, and stuff that you can see. You know, this is how we're involved 
doing missions around the world. This is how our church is involved. These are people that we can pray for. These are people that come out of our churches. Some of them coming out of our exact church, and others came out of churches just like us all over the country. So it's a great opportunity for us as we you know, kind of dial back and look at missions. This is one of the ways that we do that. And sometimes it's hard to you know, go, how do we put a finger on that? Well, um, not all of us can go over wherever it is you know, in the world that, that, that people need help or they're refugees or whatever, but, but some can. And some are called to do it. And we as a church have agreed to pray for them and financially support them so they can do what God has called them to do and, and their families can be provided for. So that's how that works. Um, they have gathered around the throne here, coming back in verse three, they've gathered around the throne and they're singing the song of Moses. And I don't know the song. I mean, I can read the song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15, but I can tell you the song of Moses was something pretty similar to what this, what, what was going down here in heaven that we read in Revelation. Because if you go back to the song of Moses, the song of Moses took place right after they set foot on the other side of the Red Sea and the sea closed up and engulfed all the Egyptians. I mean, that would have been a song, right? I mean, even people like me would have been singing. Even people who can't carry a tune in a bucket would have been singing and they would have been singing loud and it would have been going crazy. And this is what's happening at the Song of Moses. So the Song of Moses was at a great great victory. The people of God had been delivered and they've come out and, and their oppressors have been destroyed and they've been set free and they've been brought into the, the place where God has, uh, or they're on their way to the place that God has promised them. So this is part of it. And then the other song they're singing is the song of the lamb. We don't know what the song of the lamb is, but we will in heaven and it will be amazing. That's all I can tell you about it. It will be amazing because it will be the song that is about worship centered on God. It will be the song that, um, that comes in and we center everything on him, on the throne, who he is, who his person is, and that um, his holiness, it, it shows us that his holiness is what inspires us to worship. It's the holiness of God, the goodness of God, the rightness of God. The, the, those are the things that draw us to him, just like evil repulses us, just like when we see evil, we want evil to get its due, right? Unless it's our own. You know, that's just fair, right? I mean, we, we want other people's sin to be judged, but not ours. But, uh, but the thing about it is when, when we come in, when, when we come into the presence of holiness, it inspires worship in the middle of everything that happens in our world. God is sovereign and his character is holy. This is the thing that we need to remind ourselves of. So as we come back in to this book of Revelation, remember the big theme of it all is, is that God is on the throne. He is sovereign. There is nothing that is outside of his reach. There is nothing that, that happens that he will not be over that he does not allow to happen. He doesn't allow things to happen or he does not, uh, nothing happens that he doesn't allow. Satan doesn't just go out and do whatever he wants to do. He is on a leash. He is, he is causing problems. He is causing chaos, but God is ultimately on the throne. So <clears throat> as we come in, we, we see that, um, the character of God is holy. It begins in chapter, uh, chapter 15, verse 2, with the great deeds of God. So think about the great things that God has done in your life. 
I mean, just think for a moment the great things that God has done in your life. For some of you, um, you came to Christ as an adult and you had a history that you look back on and you go, you know what? I was heading down a path that wasn't good. And God saved me. God picked me up out of it. And he has done something. And he has put me on a new path. He's put a new song in my heart. He's put a new direction in my life. He has taken the past and removed it from me and placed my sin as far as the east is from the west. He has given me a hope and a future and and come out of that. And that brings up a song in our hearts when we think about that, when we come to that. And um, when we come to that point of, of totally turning everything over to God, we see an amazing thing take place. I had a friend tell me that said, you know what? When I gave up everything and when I, when I went all in, my life's never been better. Never been better. I spent years where I didn't, but when I finally did, I can tell you, it's good. And, and that's the thing that brings up a song. It brings up a joy within our lives and, and within who we are. And so he gives us a new beginning because he's almighty. He has absolute power. He has absolute power over everything that we face in life. Every single detail, every single thing that comes our way, God has absolute power over everything. Nothing happens to us that God is not above. He, allow, he doesn't cause evil. But as we struggle with it, he is above it. He's sovereign over history, and he's the Almighty. He is just, and he is true. His acts of sovereignty aren't him merely flexing his muscles. They're not merely God just flexing his power for people to see. He's not a capricious God who is out there just saying, I'm going to slap it around and, and do things. It's, it's not like the gods of the day of John where they had these gods that just did all this bizarre stuff and, and you never knew you know, what the, all the gods of the Roman pantheon and everything. They, they had all these weird character issues and, and so forth. But instead, his acts of sovereignty are based upon his character and his righteousness, and his holiness. And Jesus is the great example of God being just and true. If, if we come back, you know, everything we celebrated last week is the great picture of it. God punishes sin because he is holy. A holy God cannot tolerate sin. A holy God must punish sin. A holy God must judge sinners. A holy God has to do this. But in all of that, in his just character, He is also a God of mercy and grace. And and in that, he stepped in. He stepped into our pain. He stepped into our brokenness. He stepped into our messed up world that had rejected him. And he said, I will take their sin. I will take their punishment. I will take their judgment. I will experience it. I will taste it. I will do it. That's something that's amazing. That is something that's... that's, um, that, that's coming in because God punishes sin, whether it's by absorbing it himself or through, through the cross or whether it's allowing those who reject him to absorb it into themselves. So this is the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. He says, I will absorb their sin 
Or if they refuse to allow me to do that, if they refuse to come to me, I will let them absorb it themselves. I will give them their choice. I will allow them to do what they want to do. I will give them their heart's desire. Remember, God is our sovereign king, not any government of man. So only God is worthy to be worshipped. Only God is worthy to be worshipped because he's completely holy and he is completely different from our world. And, And so... I think the best way that I've ever heard it said, I think it was um, in a philosophy class, I had a Christian philosophy of religion. They said, God is totally other. He is totally other. He's totally different from us. Absolutely other. You can't even describe it. And, and so, you know, they came in and, and, and that's about as deep as I get into philosophy because my, my mind's just not, I'm not, I'm not smart enough for that. Um, but, uh, but anyway, it, it comes in and just says, God, he's totally other. He's totally different from us. He is holy and just and pure. And people from every nation will be at the throne in worship because he transcends everything on this earth that separates us from him and from each other. So we worship when we worship, when we come here and we sing, when we come here and we dive into the word of God and and, and we open it up and we look into it and we reflect on it, we do this because we've experienced the righteous acts of God and we see them throughout history in his word and we see them in his interactions with humanity. Just coming back on this whole thing today, I just read in Judges chapters two and three today and in Judges chapter two and three, it's a whole generation of people who'd come and they've gone through the whole exodus, they've gone through the whole thing and, and um, now they're, they've all died. Everybody who went through that whole thing, everybody who went through the crossing of the Jordan River, everybody who was over in the wilderness wandering, eating manna, everybody who had seen the conquering of the Holy Land, um, everybody who had done that, all those people died. That generation died. Joshua died, his generation died, and another generation came up. And here's what it said about that generation. They didn't know God, and they didn't know the mighty acts of God. Why? Because the generation before them didn't bother to tell them. The generation before them didn't live it out. They received something that they did not pass down. These are things, you know, we come in and we talk about missions being a value. This is family being a value. Um, This is discipleship being a value. These are things that we value. Why do we value them? Because when we come in, we have to see this. This is why when we come to worship, we worship so that the next generation can see and they can ask. And these these are things that God told the people, says, look, you do this because when your children ask, not if they ask, when they ask, why do we have to go to church? Well, I'm going to tell you why we have to go to church. We have to go to church because we have to worship God. Because if we don't go to church, we're not going to be worshiping God the way that God has told us to worship him so that other people can see. And we can come together as messed up, broken people whom God has redeemed and done something beautiful in. And he's given us a hope and a future. And we want you to understand that. And we want you to see old people with white hair worshiping God because of the things that happened before the internet. Because there was a life before then, and it was good, and it was beautiful, and it was amazing, and they don't even care about the stupid internet. They're good, right? Because all we need is the God who made us and redeemed us. And and this is what's happening. This is what's happening around this throne. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways. You absorbed our guilt. 
You've allowed those who refuse your grace and mercy to absorb their own guilt. You are just and you are true. O king of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord? Who won't fear you? Who won't worship you? Only those who have not experienced your grace and mercy. Who will not glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations, all nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. The goodness of God will be seen globally. It will be seen among every tribe, tongue, and nation. And, and that is the thing that God is, is driving us to. So when we worship, we should be taking this in and worshiping his holiness and reminding ourselves that he alone is worthy of worship because of his moral character, driving us to desire him, to desire his kingdom, to know that before we jump into the bowls, we're reminded of who he is. Before we jump into the wrath of God, we need to understand the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and the desire of God to, to come and, and, and to work in our lives. And, and so we come in and we see that. And the second thing is to trust God to answer our prayers in his timing. We need to trust God to answer our prayers in his timing. Um, it says in verse five, after this, I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures came to the seven angels, seven, uh, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels we're finished. The bowls are a reminder that God hears our prayers. Remember, if you come back, the, the angels had, they had the bowls of the prayers of the saints earlier in the book. They brought this prayers of the saints were up before God. And, and they were praying. And, and what we talked about was we said they were praying, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and as the people of God cry out to God, and they cry out to God for God to be doing here what he is doing there, then there is a great time of tumult that's going to take place. Because for God to change the earth means that he's going to have to judge evil, finally, and, and bring it all in. And, and so the bowl's a reminder that God hears our prayers and he will answer our prayers. He'll ultimately judge evil. But it will be according to his holiness, not the way that we think it should go down. It'll be according to the holiness of God and, and the grace of God and the mercy of God. It'll be a judgment that's based on his character, not our shifting standards. It'll be based upon the character of God. When he judges, it's based on his character and his character alone. And I'm so grateful for that because you know what? We are all over the page. We, we decide something's okay today and it's wrong tomorrow, wrong today and, and, and okay tomorrow. And, and we, we come in and, and shift all around without coming back to the true word of God and, and coming in there. And when we dial it into the word of God, not the way we feel, not the way we think, not the way that, that um, we, we say, you know, it ought to be, but instead, according to the word of God, we begin to see things done on the character of God and the person of God and, and who he is and his holiness. So it's a, it's a judgment that's based on his character, and it's a promise that he gives to us. Joshua 23 and, and 24, they give us a snapshot of this. God did amazing things when he delivered Israel from bondage. He did amazing things. He made a covenant that was based on his character. And he said in this covenant, he said, you know what? Here it is. If you will live in my covenant, you will be blessed. If you live within my character, within my covenant, it's going to be a beautiful life. And even though your enemies will rise up against you, you'll be victorious. 
He said, but if you choose to walk in your own ways and you choose to, to, to re- reject me and reject my covenant and reject my love, then, then it's going to be ugly. Your life is going to be ugly. You're going to be conquered by the things that you seek after outside of me. And your sin will destroy you. So <clears throat> that's where it was. Leviticus 26, 21 says, Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. This is what God told the people. He didn't say, look, here it is. He said, look, I'm placing before you today life or death. Choose. Choose today which one you want. Do you want life and blessing or do you want death and curse? So he, he placed it there. So as they come in, we see the sanctuary um, and the tent of witnesses in heaven. It's opened up to where John can see it. And out of this sanctuary come these seven angels. They've got these seven plagues and these seven golden bowls. And, and it's about to go down. And, and these people are clothed in pure bright linen, golden sashes around their chest. In other words, these are amazing creatures. And, and they are holding the, the holiness of God to be poured out upon the people and, and the, they're, they're coming from the God who is eternal, um, the God who lives forever and ever. And then we, we come in and, and we see this and it says, all of a sudden, nobody's able to look on it. Nobody's able to look on this scene. The sanctuary is filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of seven angels were finished. So all of a sudden, there's this thing that goes down there. And, and as they come in and they look. So <clears throat> the power of God are their own abilities. That, that, that was the choice that, that we saw in, in the Old Testament. It's the choice that we see today. And the results are vastly different. You know, what are we going to do? So this is ultimately what we see in the book of Revelation. Ultimately, we see this going down because historically, nothing really has changed with God, right? He's still God. He's still holy. He's still righteous. He's still the God whose character has, has, uncha- has, has unchanged. He can't, that doesn't work, does it? He's still the unchanging God. He's the God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He he is eternal. So the idea of these seven plagues go back to Israel, and they were meant to bring repentance to the people of God and harden his enemies. The people of God are drawn to God when when he disciplines them, and we're drawn to him, and we understand that his, his discipline in our life, his correction in our life is a correction of love. It's a correction of like when your father tells you don't touch the hot stove, right? And you do it anyway, you go, hmm, I should have listened. Or the, the stakes get higher and higher the older you get. But they're meant to bring the people of God to repentance and harden his enemies. And the prayers of the saints go up um, and... <clears throat> And the response of God is certain. So this is what's happening. The prayers of the saints are going up. Our prayers are going up. The people of God have been praying throughout the centuries since this time, since the time of Jesus resurrected from the cross until he comes again. The prayers of the people will be going up. There are prayers of people. You know, we, we, don't, we don't think this way really here because we're not oppressed. But if you went and talked to Christian people in Iran, they would be praying. They're praying hard. People who are oppressed and they're having to hide to worship or they're, they're seeing their friends thrown in jail for worshiping God, for not, um, for not denying Christ. 
It's real. And their prayers are going up, and they're praying, how long, how long, oh God, how long will we endure this? How long until you come back? How long until we're vindicated? How long until you show your grace and mercy to the entire world and, and that we gather around your throne and worship? And so the question is, as we come in and pray today, and, and, and we are coming into that, and we should be driven into that. We should be moved into prayer, and, and we should be moved into faithful, persistent prayer praying hard for God to do what only God can do. Will we trust God to answer our prayers according to his character and timing? Do I trust God to answer my prayers according to his character and his timing? That's a hard question. It is. Because, you know, a lot of times we want God to do something and we want him to do what we want done. And it might not be according to the character of God. But we need to pray according to the character of God and the timing of God and, and pray for that and pray to God as the saints that lift up those bowls before God of prayer. Um, in Luke 18, 1 through 8, there's the parable of the persistent widow. And, and in that, she just keeps on and keeps on and keeps on and keeps on and keeps on. And finally, you know, so the judge says, Man, I'm not, I don't, I just, I'm just want her to leave me alone. And that's not how God is, but he's saying that when we're faithful and we're persistent in our prayer, that God hears our prayers. Colossians 4.2 says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. In other words, keep on doing it and keep on watching for God to do that and thanking him for what he's going to do. Pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Romans 12.12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And in other words, there are places throughout the Bible that tell us that we are to pray and pray and pray and to keep on doing that and and as we come in and we look at this book of Revelation, you're going to see history between the cross and the second coming. And you're seeing the saints lifting their prayers up to God. And so however long it is between now and when Jesus comes back, the prayers of the saints are being brought up into the very presence of God. Remember, he is on the throne. He is sovereign. Nobody can stand in his presence when he judges sin. This is what we're seeing here when he says that, that nobody was able to enter the temple. Nobody can stand in the presence of God when he's, when he's judging sin. Nobody can see that. Nobody can look on that because... Um, the awfulness of his judgment. Not even the heavenly beings, not even the heavenly beings were able to gaze upon that. And, and we must trust him even when we don't understand it in the moment. Even when we don't understand what's going on, even when we don't understand what's happening in our world, we have to trust that God is sovereign, God is on the throne, and he alone, he alone is worthy of our worship and praise, and he has a view that we will never have in this life. We'll never, ever have it. Um, Daniel has some pretty cool pictures of the northern lights. We don't get those because we're not sitting up in the front end of 747 or 7 whatever it is, whatever that thing is he flies. Um, we don't get to see that, you know, because a lot of times the clouds are out there and he's above the clouds and he can see it above the clouds and he dropped down below the clouds. There's nothing happening here but clouds and, and whatever it is that we got. That's what God's view is every day. It's better than his. His view's nothing. Compared to God's view, his view is piddling. I mean, it's like nothing. 
God sees it all, and, and we have to understand that he does, and he sees everything, and he has this view that we're never going to have in this life, and he sees all things, he knows all things, he understands all things, and, and he is there for us. And when we cry out, how long, it comes with this assurance. When we cry out, how long, God, I can't endure this anymore. How long do I have to go through this? God, how long must I suffer? God, how long am I going to have to pray for my child to, to t- come back to you. God, how long am I going to have to pray for my neighbor? How long am I going to have to pray for my friend? How long am I going to have to pray for my parent? Maybe how long am I going to have to pray for my spouse? How long? How long? We just need to understand that he hears us and he will respond. It may not be the way that we want, it may not be the way that we dream. It may not be the way that we understand, but, but it will be according to the infinite wisdom and knowledge and holiness of God, according to his character, according to his sovereignty, according to every individual's choice to respond to the grace and mercy of God or reject that. So as we come in and, and we wrap it up, you know, we've got a lot of stuff and go, wow. Um, here's the thing. Who are you praying for? Who are you praying for? I mean, we've talked about this throughout the book of Revelation. Um, as we've gone through this, we've talked about it before that. But who is it that you pray for on a very, very regular basis? Maybe you've got a family member that, that you just look in, you're looking from the outside in, and you're saying, you know what? I want to look beyond the lifestyle. I want to look beyond the choices. I want to look beyond their messed up view of the world. And I want to look to the fact that, one, this is my flesh and blood. Two, God redeemed me and I'm no better than they are. Oh God, redeem them. Oh God, work in their life to redeem them. Because you see, when it all comes down to it, we're, we're, we're all affected by sin. It shows itself in different ways. It doesn't really matter how it shows itself. The result of sin is what? Death. But thanks be to God who has given us life in Christ Jesus. So who are you praying for? Because I want to tell you something. Just like God saved you, he can save them. Just like God changed you, he can change them. Just like God changed me, he can change someone else. So I have people that I pray for every day. Maybe not every day, but pretty much every day. Pretty much every single day. I, I pray. I pray for them. There are times where I get in a hurry or get off track. But, um, but there, there are people that I, I regularly pray for. There are family members I regularly pray for. There are people um, that, that I know that I regularly pray for, people that I interact with because of my job that I regularly pray for. I mean, there, there are all kinds of things that, that go on there. And, and I know that God um, hears those prayers. Who are you praying for? And the other thing is, what are you praying for? What? What are you praying for God to do? Because that's, that's where we come in and, and we come back and, and move back to the very beginning. Because here's the thing. The book of Revelation tells us what? God.
God is on the throne. He's on the throne. He's never left the throne. He'll never leave the throne. And, and he hears our prayers and he hears our cries out to him. So as we come in and, and we have this little, little time, this little sliver of time together where we can worship God and we can sing and, and we can pour our hearts out to him, um, we, we have to understand that, that it is a holy roar to God. God loves it. And, and it's based on not us. It's not based on the people who stand up here or the things that they hold in their hands or bang on or whatever. It's based on the lamb on the throne. And when we come to the lamb on the throne, man, it's amazing, isn't it? It's just amazing. This is what God wants to do in all of our lives. So <clears throat> as we come in, I want to challenge you today. Who are you praying for? What are you praying for? And are you keeping it up here in the front? God's on the throne. God's on the throne. He's never left the throne. He's not going to leave the throne. He's in control. I can trust him, and I can lean into him, and I can throw it all out there before him because he's going to answer. Let's pray. Father, we come before you praising you because you alone are worthy. Father, you are the God of all creation who has made us and created us in your image, who gives us a hope and a future. Father, we praise you because we know you hear our prayers. And Lord, we pray as a church that, that we'll be the people that, that you desire us to be, Father, that we will worship you wholeheartedly, Father, that we will not chase after the idols of this world, the things that tear us down and that break your heart. Father, but instead that we will love you with all of our being, that we will pray for the people around us and that we'll wait expectantly on you to do the things that you've promised. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.